Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I speak with Michelle Edelman, the founder and CEO of Infinite Foods. Michelle has over 30 years of business experience as a former global managing director for Accenture, CEO of a U.S.-based home health services company, and group strategy executive for the Pan-African Econet Group. Infinite Foods, one of her new ventures, is a go-to-market platform for plant-based food brands to reach Africa and emerging markets faster and with lower risk. Infinite provides a turnkey capability to enable its brand partners like Beyond Meat, Just Foods, Oatly, and Miyoko's to increase revenue and impact by reaching the African consumer and tourism market. In this wide-ranging conversation, Michelle shares how a midlife crisis led her to sell her Park Avenue apartment in New York City and move to Africa. We then talk about how she decided to focus on building businesses connected to changing the food system. We also get into the African food system and the unique challenges and opportunities it presents. We then dive into why Michelle is driven by the idea of helping the African continent leapfrog to a healthy and sustainable food system and help consumers and governments avoid many of the challenges we have faced in the West, including lifestyle diseases and rising healthcare costs. A big part of our conversation was focused on how leading companies developing plant-based food won't be able to fulfill their promise of feeding the planet's growing population if they don't start making inroads into the African market, which has a billion consumers and a fast-growing population. We discuss how Infinite Foods is working to accelerate the current pace of growth to bring plant-based protein to the African market by also sourcing ingredients from Africa and launching in-region manufacturing. We not only discuss the profound social and economic implications of Infinite Foods' long-term strategy, but we also break down the practical steps that can lead us there. If you truly care about the future of food and solving the problem of feeding the world in a healthy and sustainable way in 2050, I guarantee you will gain a lot from this discussion. Michelle Edelman, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. A real pleasure to be here. 
let's go back to the beginning. Let's start with what got you interested in how food is produced, uh, distributed, and consumed. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I think I must win the award for having come the farthest distance in order to be able to be <laughs> on your podcast. So um, hopefully the jet lag has worn off and I'm in good shape today. Um you know, my interest in food really and my, my deep involvement in, f- in the food area really started about eight years ago when I had my massive midlife crisis. So um, I have a, an agricultural engineering degree from Cornell, um, but graduated from college and moved to New York and worked for Accenture for over 20 years. Um, had a really great career. But about, you know, eight, nine years ago, I did have this kind of massive midlife crisis and thought it would be a really super fantastic idea to sell my apartment in Park Avenue, put all my early belongings in a shipping container and move to Africa and start building businesses. And the kind of investment thesis around where I wanted to create new businesses was, one, they needed to create net new economic activity in the marketplace. I wanted to use technology as a catalyst to do that. And I wanted the technology to be sustainable. And I worked through a whole bunch of pipeline of projects, and I kept on coming back to food over and over again because it kind of hit all of those those buckets. I shouldn't be saying this, but good you had that midlife crisis because otherwise you wouldn't <laughs> be doing what you're doing now. Um, and I, I hope you're happy with the journey you've been on for the last eight years. So let me Well, clarify. it's definitely been interesting, right? You know, <laughs> so it'll make a good beach read someday, I think. Yeah. So at least you didn't travel around the world and then come back with no plan. Um, <laughs> and you're building something. So that's why you're even on this podcast. So give us a sense of what the food system in Africa is like. I'm guessing majority of the listeners have no idea. Yeah. So the food system is broken, but in a in a different way than uh, what we have here. And I think that actually presents a big opportunity and, and part of why I'm really focusing on food and, and agricultural technology. Um, you have 60% of people are still in, uh, in agriculture as employment, um, but they're subsistence. So basically de- defined by you know, the only food, nutrients, or income that they get is from the farming that they do, and generally on very small holder um, type of land, so less than five, uh, five hectares or five acres, rather. Um, and the diets in general tend to be very carbohydrate-centric um, and not very diverse. So to say, you know, Africans don't have, you know, they have no food, that wouldn't be fair, right? That's definitely not true. Um, people, uh, traditional diets tend to be very carbohydrate-centric. So you have uh, a corn porridge or sorghum or cassava that is kind of the primary staple. You'll have local vegetables, um, a lot of which is kind of grown locally, a lot of spinach and, and squash. And then you've got traditionally meat was game meat, Right. So but the cattle industry has definitely grown, especially in the southern part of Africa. And so, you know, Africans do love their meat and they love their cows. Um, And, you know, even today, for example, in Botswana, where we have our fresh produce business, you know, you cows are still traded to get married. Right. Like you can't (laughs) get married without trading cows um, as part of the of the bride price. Um, so even it doesn't matter what class you are, right? Upper class, lower class, like that's still part, very much part of culture. Interesting. <laughs> so, um, I, I didn't know that, but but still to hear that again is is interesting. Um, and how much of the food in Africa is um, is imported versus grown? Sixty um, percent of the population in Africa are farmers. Yeah. 
but there's about 47% malnutrition in the continent. Yeah, so malnutrition is very high. So this whole idea of diet diversification and having you know the types of foods that will really nourish uh, you. So you know like that carbohydrate centric tends to be very tummy filling, right? Mm-hmm. So you know you feel full, but you're not necessarily getting all of the nutrition and the nutrients that you need. Um, iron deficiency is very high. Vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc. Um, these are kind of very common um, uh, food uh, issues. And you know, from an overall food security perspective, Africa is not in a fantastic place. Um, if you look at the Global Food Security Index, um, there's only two countries, South Africa and Botswana, that are in the top half. And you know, 30 of 54 countries are in the bottom quartile. So. Um, so you do have quite a bit of you do have locally grown food again subsistence food but a lot of food is moved around and there's a fairly sophisticated commercial farming system particularly in South Africa increasingly in East Africa and Kenya um, and the former Zimbabwe um, but um, and so there is for example you know in South Africa where we've launched our infinite foods plant-based food business you have a you have sophisticated infrastructure in place. You've got a sophisticated supermarket system. And so people do have access to food. But we're in this very interesting, I think, inflection point where um, people are moving into the middle class. The population is growing very fast. And we have an opportunity to to work with consumers to help them kind of leapfrog over, you know, from this you know carbohydrate-centric diet into something that is much more plant-forward. And kind of avoid what I sometimes call the trough of food despair, which is mm-hmm. where we are in the West, where we have, you know, over prevalence uh, and consumption of meat and dairy, or processed food has become the norm. Um, we're not entirely there yet um, in Africa. And so I think we have an opportunity, especially with this whole plant-based movement, to um, help Africa leapfrog to a healthy food system, a sustainable food system, and help Consumers and governments avoid, uh, you know, many of the challenges that we faced in the West, including, you know, lifestyle di- diseases like diabetes and heart disease, um, and helping manage healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I don't know economically where things stand, and I guess it's no easy way to generalize it because Africa is yeah. a continent. Each country is, it, it's got its own issues. Um, but you know, bro- when we speak in broad strokes, we typically are when we say the developing world and the developed world, we say all oh, China and India is a rising mi- middle class. I've seen it. I, I grew up in India. I travel to India every other year. Uh, I can see the change happening, and I can see walking into grocery stores uh, the difference in the kind of products that are available, plus the kind of foods that people are tending to consume when they go out to eat. Has, has changed. In other words, I mean, one clear pattern I've seen is people are consuming more meat than they ever did. People who didn't consume meat are consuming meat. Um, Africa is a completely different, you know, completely different you know, beast in that sense yeah. because you've, um, you know, on one hand, you have the whole malnutrition problem. Access to food is a significant issue. And even when you do have access to food, as you just said, um, it may not be the right food. And so in this day and age, in, in 2019, when you walk into a, a grocery store, I haven't been to Africa for more than 10 years now, and I vaguely remember what was in the grocery store when I was, I was only in Kenya. Uh, but if you walk into a grocery store today, say in Botswana, um, do you see a lot of uh, imported products? Um, like yeah, what's predominantly so see, sold there? Yeah, so you see a combination. So you'll see a lot of... Um, 
especially in Southern Africa, a lot of the meat is local. So you mm. will have um, Botswana or South African uh, beef, pork, uh, poultry. Uh, the fresh produce um, will generally be South African grown. So, for example, next door in Botswana, 80% of the fresh produce is imported in from neighboring South Africa. Um, but, you know, so think about India. It's got a billion consumers in one country. Uh, we have a billion consumers. They're just spread across 54 different countries. Mm. And the dynamics in Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, and Western Africa are quite different. So in Southern Africa... Um, kind of with South Africa as the anchor, you've got a fairly sophisticated infrastructure. You've kind of got big, I call them the big five grocery store retailers that are sophisticated. And, you know, you could walk into a Woolworths in in Johannesburg or Cape Town and it would look like going into Whole Foods. Hmm. Um, so you've got decent um, cold chain distribution. You've got existing infrastructure. And when you walk into the grocery stores, you actually have pretty good diversification if people can afford to buy. Mm. Um, East Africa is slightly different. It's kind of a hybrid. There's still a lot of informal distribution in local markets, and people just go to the local market to buy, um, as well as your regular grocery stores. And then West Africa is a completely different beast. Um, so still informal marketplaces really dominate in, in Western Africa. So you can't look at Africa as mm. a thing. You have to look at Africa as 54 different things. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the challenge when we start thinking about how do we start introducing, um, you know, new leading plant-based foods into the African continent um, because doing business is very complicated. I often uh, draw the analogy, you know, imagine driving from, you know, Washington, D.C. to New York City. And every time that you crossed a state line, you had to get out of your car, change currency, change language, fill out forms, potentially pay a bribe, you know, spend half an hour, an hour at the border um, to move from, you know, D.C. to Maryland, Maryland to Virginia, Virginia to Delaware. You know, I'm not getting my states in the right order. You know, New Jersey to New York. So imagine just driving from Washington to, to New York and... Every single time you cross the state border, you had to, to mm. basically change countries. And that's a little bit of what we face um, in terms of the complexity of doing business in Africa. So that's like a perfect segue, segue to where I want to go next, which is, so then if that's the case, what made you want to focus on food? Uh, as, as your, you know, yes, of course, I can, I, I, they're all good reasons because it's a, it's a good problem to, to focus on. Um, it, we, we have to fix our food system and obviously we have to do that globally. Uh, but it sounds like it, it's it's tough business. It is very tough business. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. And for those of, those people who think that, you know, doing business in Africa is scary, you know, they're, they're well-informed. Um, look, I, for me, food is life, right? And, and if the beautiful thing about food and agriculture is that we have the technology to be able to do things better. So... In Africa, we're sitting on 25% of the world's arable land, but only 10% of the yields. So there's a huge opportunity to transform that agricultural system and to do it in a way that will feed us healthy food and do it in a way that will protect the planet. Um, so I've been very um, focused around food and ag technology because, A, you can make a huge impact on people's lives and their health. B, it's a great way of creating employment. So the unemployment amongst young people is incredibly high, 40% in a lot of countries. 
not like four or 14, but 40. So imagine, you know, being here in L.A. and having 40 percent of the youth be unemployed. Um, you can imagine what kind of, uh, you know, potential instability that mm -hmm. that would create. Um, so it's a, a great way of creating employment. Um, we have the technology, you know, our Go Fresh business, which is a hydroponic controlled environment greenhouse business. We grow fresh produce in the desert. Um, the technology exists, and we've been able to help um, in a country like Botswana that imports a, a huge amount of their fresh produce to actually start to become and, and have the ability to look to become self-sufficient in the crop categories that we grow if we can scale out the model that we've built. Um, and I think from a food and nutrition perspective, it's a, again, it's a huge, it's a very complex problem, but it's also a huge opportunity for us to kind of set the stage for the continent to do something different and effectively kind of leapfrog this negative system that we, we have in place, you know, industrialized factory farming and the overconsumption of meat and processed foods and move to something that is, you know, healthier and more sustainable. So, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. It's very complex, but I think that's what I get really excited about. Um, kind of, I think it goes back to my old Accenture days, um, which is kind of taking those big complex problems, unpacking them, and start you know putting the building blocks in place so that we can start creating solutions. You kind of touched on it, but culturally, where are things right now in terms like food is is part of culture everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's a given. Um, as the population of, of Africa also will continue to grow, as people uh, are able to uh, afford better food, and hopefully those who don't have access to food can access nutritious food, what is a typical meal look like? And and I, the reason I ask that is because one of the things I, again, I'm, I'm, I don't have too much context around Africa, which is why I'm tempted to spend in all of this podcast just <laughs> learning about it, but I won't do that. I'll spare the listener. Um, as fascinating as a topic it is, but the reason I ask is like, what is the food culture like? Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Is when I when I talk to people, some people in India about um, why we need to leapfrog, why uh, you know with every we don't India doesn't have to mimic the West when it comes to um, everything. And there's some things we can learn from the lessons uh, that the West has learned when it comes to most industries, and, and food and agriculture is a big one. So this temptation to now consume uh, vast con quantities of meat, uh, this temptation to consume more processed foods, fast food, is not necessarily a good thing. Often when I talk about things like alternative proteins or why plant-based meats and, and dairy alternatives uh, could be a possible way to leapfrog into the future for those who want to eat meat, most people have said two, two things. One is they want to eat meat and that doesn't, they don't somehow, they don't view it as meat. Secondly, they say, and this is the cultural thing, is that most people in countries like India, and I, I guess I would love to learn more about how it is in most countries in Africa, don't eat out that often. They they also have uh, help when they're cooking at home. So, uh, you know, labor is way cheaper in, in the developing world. I mean, especially in countries like India where the population is so high, you can, you can get someone to cook your food f for the price you would go outside and eat really good quality food. So if that's the case, people really are, are not going to possibly try 
plant-based alternatives because it's just, you know, that's that's not what they're even considering in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have a lot of this exact same characteristics. So, and I think this is typical of whether you look at Africa, India, South Asia, emerging Asia, it seems to be a natural course of evolution, right? As people move um, into the middle class, their incomes go up and they want to buy meat, right? It's kind of part of coming into the, the joy of coming into the middle yeah. class, um, which is, you know, ha- being able to afford to buy meat. Um, and processed food is starting, to, is certainly increasing. We're seeing all of the big chains, um, the processed food chains, you know, from Kentucky Fried Chicken to McDonald's, um, you know, popping up across Africa. So um, Africa, if left to its own, you know, to its current trend, is going to follow that same trend um, that we are seeing in India, where meat consumption is rising. So, you know, we have a population that's growing at two and a half times faster than the rest of the world. So there's a billion consumers now. There'll be two billion consumers by 2050. Meat consumption is rising at 4% per year. So it's pretty significant. And it's, of course, rising most as people are moving into the middle class. And there certainly is a there's a mixture. Um, and again, depending on where you are and what class you're in, there's certainly a mixture of eating at home and, and restaurants. I mean, there are a lot of you know, you go to any capital city across Africa, and there's wonderful hotels and wonderful restaurants. But generally, when you're in the rural areas, for the most part, you're eating um, basically what's available. Okay. So when you started um, thinking about how is it that you're going to embark on this incredibly uh, challenging journey to uh, try and sort of change the food system in Africa and how food is consumed— what was the plan? So for for someone listening who doesn't know about your various businesses mm-hmm. and how they all tie in together, um, give us sort of the high-level view of why you chose to do the things that you're doing, and, and then maybe we can dive deeper into Infinite Foods. Yeah. So it really started with Go Fresh, which is our, our fresh produce business, um, which we um, launched five years ago. Um, it currently operates in Botswana. And we have, which is a country right next to South Africa, kind of sandwiched between Namibia, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and South Africa. And we now run um, four farms. So we basically have taken controlled environment, agriculture concepts, urban agricultural concepts, and we've applied them in the African context. So we've built these greenhouses that can grow fresh produce 365 days a year, but it's pretty much the desert. You know, the, the, there's like two percent arable land in the entire country, um, and we've solved a lot of problems as it relates to, you know, the the produce that we grow is is grown either organically or in a sustainable method, meaning we use very judicious use of fertilizers and pesticides um, in an integrated pest management way. We grow right next to the consumer, so we grow within um, thirty five. Uh, 30 kilometers of the consumer. So we have no spoilage in our supply chain. Uh, Produce is picked fresh to order every day and delivered fresh to the customer, which means we're putting nutrient-rich fresh produce in front of the consumer on a daily basis. So 30% of nutrient loss happens in the first three days of harvesting. So if you've got an import-export model where your tomatoes are being grown in South Africa and they're being trucked 1,000 kilometers into Botswana, by the time the, the tomatoes get there, they've lost most of their nutrients. And, oh, by the way, they were picked pretty much raw mm-hmm. to make it through the travel, so they taste like cardboard and nobody wants to eat them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
And and we've really, for our, our restaurant and hospitality customers, including the safari industry up in the northern part of Botswana, we've really transformed their ability to provide a food and beverage experience to their uh, to their guests, mm-hmm. which we think is great. So because uh, helping enable the tourism industry in Africa is very important because it's a very important economic growth driver um, outside of metals and mining. So supporting the tourism industry is a noble cause mm-hmm. um, and us helping those food and beverage um, provide that better food and beverage experience is really important to our safari camps. So for example, they would get uh, previously, they'd only get one, well, to, even today, they get one fresh produce uh, delivery a week into these remote camps where the safaris are. Before we came into the market, when they got the produce into camp, it might have already been three or five days old, mm-hmm. and it had already traveled a thousand kilometers. So now when they're getting fresh produce into camp, it was it was um, harvested that morning. Mm-hmm. And so the shelf life is much better. The quality is much better. It's riper. It's more tasty. And then we work really closely with those customers to grow 15 different types of culinary herbs and all the things that they want. So so GoFresh was really the foundation of us tackling how do we use technology? How do we disrupt it, completely change the way people think about the fresh produce supply chain? How do we use technology that is sustainable? Um, we only use 2% of the water that would be otherwise used and then how do we build an operating model that's very localized? So the entire operation is run by youth, um, by young Botswana. We hire them right out of college. We train them from scratch, and they run the entire company. And that's why I can be here. <laughs> and they're there, you know, growing beautiful tomatoes and cucumbers and, and lettuce and herbs because um, they run everything from HR, finance, growing operations, sales, customer service. Um, they do it all. So we effectively have created an operating model that we can pick up and replicate into other parts of, of Africa um, so that we can supply fresh produce close to the consumer in a, in a very um, a very neat way. But, you know, what happened was based on the success of Go Fresh and the amazing brand that we've built and the amazing customer base that we've built, I kind of turned my sights on what I think is the next big hurdle for Africa, which is protein. Um, and if we think about the 2050, you know, food security and protein problem, which is, you know, we're going to have 10 billion people. And if we don't change the way that we produce protein, we're going to run out of air and um, water and everything else. That growth is not happening here in Southern California. You know, the, the problem of protein of the future is happening in Africa and South Asia. That's where the growth is coming. And that's where the stress on the system is. And so... As I looked forward to that, I really felt like we need to start now uh, if we want to try to start changing those behaviors we were just talking about earlier, which is the increasing consumption of meat, um, increasing consumption of dairy, which is all very weird because probably 80% of Africans are lactose intolerant. So why we're always trying to jam dairy milk down them is kind of unusual. Um, But, you know, how can we kind of stem that problem by getting started early. And that basically became the birth of Infinite Foods. So I said, look, I have this amazing customer base. Um, Why not now, you know, diversify what we supply them out of fresh produce and start moving into these alternative proteins? So that's Infinite Foods. So um, Infinite Foods, how would you describe Infinite Foods? I know it's focused on the alternative 
protein space, yeah. but you don't actually manufacture any products, not yet anyway. Yeah. So um, Infinite Foods is a go-to-market platform for the leading brands to reach Africa and you know, potentially expanding into other frontier markets faster and with less risk. So what we do is we provide a turnkey capability to enable you know, emerging and leading brands to increase their revenue and their impact by reaching the African consumer and the tourism market. So we work with brands like Beyond Meat and Oatly. I was really excited that today we're loading our first pallet of Miyoko's butter. Um, we work with Nature & Moi uh, out, of, out of France, and we are enabling these brands to reach Africa, you know, probably years ahead of what their business plans have have said. You know, I have this little joke that, you know, I, I have this picture of what the whiteboard looks like in, in, in all of our suppliers, you know, and, you know, step number one is, you know, invest, you know, millions of dollars of R&D and build amazing, great tasting products. You know, step two, build your brand and build U.S. domestic distribution. Step three, you know, dabble in high value international distribution. Step four, feed the world. Hmm. And so what we're saying is, well, heck, you know, why don't we start feeding the world now? Um, and, and so that's what we do. We really try to enable these brands to reach this consumer and to start making that impact. Um, and look, it's a, it's a big lift. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about the behavior change and even the numbers that just came out of GFI about the current adoption of alternative proteins in the U.S., right, 1% of all meat sales, retail meat sales, you know, we have a huge lift in the U.S. to start changing behavior. And you've got, you know, all the buzz, all the resources, Whole Foods, great brands. You've got, you know, everything is going for us here in the U.S. to drive that behavior change. You know, I don't have all those tools. So I feel like we need to start early to start driving that behavior change. And for me, that starts with great brands that taste great. Um, and so that's our number one uh, criteria as we're working with uh, to identify our um, partner suppliers. And we call them partner suppliers because we really feel um, kind of a deep uh, sense of mission and purpose that we're representing their brands and giving them that reach in the way that they would want it to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we really provide that kind of turnkey capability. Um, so it's much more than just distribution. Um, we do everything uh, from all of the regulatory approvals and label approvals and making sure things go through customs and clearing in an, in an ethical and clean way. Um, we do all of the education and market development um, to get consumers to become aware of how these plant-based foods can improve their health and improve the environment. Uh, we amplify their brands. So we take, you know, kind of standard marketing materials and we tailor it for the culture and the language of the local market. Um, we certainly sell multi-channel into retail, into hospitality, food service institutions. We handle all of the distribution. So everything from you know landing containers at the port through bonded warehouses, through last mile cold chain distribution. Um, and then we're also ultimately moving into sourcing and manufacturing. So you know our, our long-term goal is that we're not just um, selling and distributing these brands into Africa, but that we are actually manufacturing under license a lot of these brands locally. Mm. 
That's our that's our big picture goal because it's only when we can do that that we can bring the price points down to a point that they become accessible to the mass market. And it's the other thing is that becomes very important in terms of our opportunity to catalyze change in the agricultural system in Africa. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how 60% of people are are smallholder farmers, how we are sitting on 25% of the arable land, but only getting 10% of the yields. So for me, that creates a great opportunity, right? We can use this movement. We can use this emergence of this new plant-based food category as a positive catalyst to change agriculture. I mean, if you look at what's going to be the next scale problem for a lot of these companies, I mean, <laughs> we've been living the scale problem with them as they've been trying to sort through um, co-packing and, and manufacturing and scale. But, you know, once those problems can be solved, mm-hmm. right? And the next big problem I think, and I think that people are underestimating, which is if we're shifting our food system and we're now eating our hamburgers made out of peas and our eggs out of mung beans and our milk out of oats and almonds and cashews, you know, where are those products, where are those raw materials coming from? Mm-hmm. And our U.S. agricultural system is not really designed to kind of shift on a dime and point in a new direction. You know, a lot of our system is tied to subsidies. A lot of our system is tied to, you know, corn is grown for ethanol. It's not even tied to the food market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our U.S. agricultural system is not really positioned to go, oh, there's this new emerging food category that's coming. And so we're going to shift and start growing peas and mung beans. Um, so I think that actually provides us a great opportunity in Africa because we can use that as a very positive um, catalyst for change. So, for example, we're working with um, a cashew manufacturer up in Cote d'Ivoire, up in the western part of Africa. Mm-hmm. Little would you know that you know more than 50% of the world's cashews are grown in Africa. Um, but they are generally um, moved into Vietnam for further processing, and then they're basically sold from Vietnam into, you know, what we, we would know as the various uh, brands that are buying mm-hmm. cashews for uh, plant-based cheese, plant-based butter, uh, plant-based milk, cashew-based milk. Um, and so we're able to, we're now starting to link these small, uh, this, this new organization that's working with smallholder cashew providers and putting that value out of processing in Cote d'Ivoire so that those cashews can go directly from uh, from Africa to the producers rather than having to go through the middleman in Vietnam who's taking margin and marking things up. So the, the manufacturers on the U.S. side will get better quality product. They'll get it faster. They'll get it cheaper. And which will make their products more competitive. And then that obviously positions us in the future to say, okay, well, when is the right time to now start shifting manufacturing um, into the African context? So there's a, a lot to unpack over there. Um, you kind of answered some of my questions with what you, what some, some of the questions I was anticipating asking. But I want to go back to what you mentioned a, a little bit in the beginning, which was, you have majority of the companies focused on plant-based meats, uh, milks, um, plant-based egg. A lot of them all based in California, talking about um, changing our food system, being able to feed the world by 2050. <laughs> and we are largely at the moment not even scratching the surface of, of feeding 
um, Americans this food. Not where the problem is growing. It's growing, as you said, in the developing world. It's growing in Africa. It's growing in Asia. So first and foremost, I totally understand that. And I think it's a reality check for a lot of companies thinking you're not really solving their problem. You're just you're just talking a big talk if you don't actually start taking steps towards helping to get these products to parts of the world that that should get it soon and need it now before it's too late and they've already started to transition into this worse system uh, and then it's too late to turn back. But secondly, I also, in, in working with companies out here and having talked to nearly all of them, I understand the reality is of running a food business um, and even being able to scale up uh, a small operation to feed, um, to, to supply some distributors is a huge challenge for most of these companies. They're small startups, and some of them have had to learn the hard way that manufacturing a, a prototype product in their test kitchen is not the same as scaling that up to supply nationally. Um, and they've all struggled with it. They've all struggled with so the supply chain issues. They've struggled with actually figuring out how to manufacture some of these unique products uh, on their own because co-manufacturers just can't cut it for them because their products are so different. Um, there's technology involved. There's significant amount of investment involved. There's significant amount of expertise required to scale production of things that just haven't been made before. Um, and yeah, depending on the product, of course. So I do understand that the practical practical reality some of these companies are facing. And, and then when you talk about, you know, when are you going to go international, that's not even within their yeah. radar. And I'm sure exactly. you've you talk to them too and you've learned this um there's only a handful that can even possibly even explore the idea of supplying internationally at this stage and there are of course exceptions there are some that have been around now a decade or so there are some that have been around many decades that could possibly uh expand internationally and many are expanding internationally um so i just i i, I kind of it's i struggle with it a little bit i get theoretically i think it it is what we need to do um, practically, it's a struggle. And that's when it comes to the, the third thing you mentioned in the end, which is, hmm, maybe there's some way to short-circuit this, right? <laughs> uh, which is when you mentioned, and that was kind of a, a bit of an aha for me too, which was, oh, wait, why don't you manufacture some of this stuff in parts of the world and and supply those ingredients also from there? So without going, I mean, I'm sure you can say much more about this, but when when you say supplying the raw ingredients, you mentioned cashews, but let's just say you know, and I I hate, I hate to constantly give pea protein as the example because mung beans is the other one. Yeah, we right? could have yeah. in five years there could be another protein that that yeah. is doing equally as good. Um, so are you also talking to ingredient manufacturers, for example, to shift production to parts of Africa, and is that also a role that Infinite Foods can make? So in some ways, what you're doing is you're you're truly becoming a plug-and-play system. You know, you know, you said turnkey. I, I think of it that way. I have a background in tech, so I think <laughs> of things like how can we, how can we almost? And again, this is not the best word, but how can you hack this, this growth? Yeah. And you, what, what I think I gathered is that you are possibly heading in that direction, where you're not only saying to Beyond Meat, for example, bring your products to to Africa, we can help distribute it. Because they can work with any licensor or distributor for that. You're saying, well, this is the long-term plan. We can actually eventually bring down the cost and manufacture this products here because we've got these 10 partnerships. Or you actually have your own 
production facilities may be. Yeah. No. And so and uh, and to unpack that a little bit um, again, that that is our that is our end goal. I think that all of these products will ultimately need to be manufactured in region um, in order for the the manufactured price and the delivered price to be what it should be. I mean, conceptually, to think about let's you know if we're here ten years from now. And we're delivering plant-based foods and shipping containers, whether it be to Africa or to Singapore to Hong Kong. You know, what have we? You know, what what's the environmental footprint of that? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that we are going to have to. The, the industry is going to have to move to a regional manufacturing base just to live up to the brand of we're protecting the environment. Um, we. Yes, I mean, I think that the the brands are are emerging. We certainly see people struggling to keep up with scale. And what we do from a business model perspective is just make it really easy. So, you know, we pick up at the dock, we handle everything else. Um, and because we are exclusively, we're not kind of a broadline distributor, we're not a fancy foods distributor, uh, we are exclusively focused on plant-based brands. And that's all we do. Um, and so we're able to start seeding the market with smaller quantities of product so that we can start generating demand and show those so show those brands. I mean, let's face it. You know, when I rock up at most of these brands and say, "Hey, you know, I want to distribute. You know, I want to. I want you to 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 help us get your brand to Africa so that we can, you know, feed the world." I mean, they do look at me like I'm slightly insane, <laughs> and um, and so we have to make it easy for them mm-hmm. if 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 that's going to happen. Um, so that's I think that's that's one really big part, and I and I want to go back to this, uh, this whole movement as a positive catalyst for change in Africa. And I know that probably a lot of your listeners don't understand a lot of the social and political issues that are going on right now in Africa as it relates to land reform. Um, certainly in the post-colonial era, uh, there still is a lot of tension around land redistribution um, and. As the land is distributed and, and given back to black farmers, what are we going to have them do? What are we going to have them grow? How are they going to be successful? So, you know, as a mission-driven company, we are looking at this in a very holistic way, and we're looking at it in a very patient capital way. We're looking, we're in this for the long haul. So, you know, our objective right now is to build brands, to build awareness, to start generating demand for these products and for these brands. And once we've been able to demonstrate, not to us, like we know that they're going to sell, but mm-hmm. when, again, when I rock up at the brands, they're like, you know, you know, is anybody in Africa, can they afford to buy this? And I'm like, yes, really. You know, if you, um, you know, if you, if you go to Cape Town, you go to Johannesburg, you go to any capital city anywhere in Africa, you know, you're going to be staying in a three $500 a night five-star hotel. And yes, there are people who can mm-hmm. afford to buy these products. So let's just do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's start building the brand, building the demand. And that then creates the framework and the foundation for us to say, okay, if we've demonstrated that we have the demand, we're educating the market about how this is a better way of eating, we're helping source input ingredients, now isn't it time to start manufacturing regionally? Mm-hmm. I also think that there's a – well, you said that there's a, an important point there where there's some role of, of, of education and marketing to a certain extent mm-hmm. where, yes, maybe 
in the next two to five years, you're not going to be able to bring down the cost of these products. And it is going to be, as long as you're shipping products from here to Africa, it's never going to be cheap. Uh, but at the same time, there is an opportunity to, even in a small way, to, to brand the products, to educate the consumer base that this is this new amazing thing that everyone in America is eating and everyone in the West is shifting towards. Yeah. Try it. It's almost like making it cool before it, you know, you're able to mass market the thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming most of the initial entry points to these products uh, maybe you can give us some examples through through the companies you worked with. Is in food service. Yeah, so we started. Um, so we've been trading for about a year, um, and we are now in over six hundred um, food service and, and hospitality outlets across South Africa, Botswana. Uh, we'll be launching in Mauritius um, uh, at the end of well, the beginning of next month, and we'll be in Kenya before the end of the year, and in Ghana. Uh, the beginning of 2020. So we've we've initially started in the hospitality and food service space, but we will be launching retail. Um, we've already launched some retail beyond sausages, um, but we'll be launching retail um, with one of the major um, uh, grocery store chains in the November timeframe um, in a limited exclusive basis. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really great. We're very very excited to be able to get the products in the hands of consumers through retail. Because as you said, you know, eating at home is and cooking at home is still, you know, big or bigger than eating out. And so when you're not able to provide the products and the brands in the retail format, consumers, they get really indignant. I mean, if, if anything that's happened um, over the last 12 months as we've been rolling out these products in hospitality and food service is, you know, the consumers are like, you know, when can we get it? Mm -hmm. And it's really unfair that you guys are not allowing us to go to the retail stores and buy it in a way that's a little bit different. I think uh, culturally and socially, it's a little bit different um, in terms of people's sensitivity to they feel excluded. Um, and so we're very sensitive to that. And um, we're trying to get these products into retail as quickly as we can so that we can reach kind of both the consumer that goes out to eat, but the consumer that cooks at home as well. Yeah, and for the for the hospitality cases, I know you said you mentioned you supplied some of the, maybe that was with Go Fresh, but yeah. maybe maybe also with Beyond Meat to, to the safaris and the tourist industry because it's a huge industry for tourism in some parts of Africa. Twenty three billion, twenty three yeah. billion in receipts in Africa. So, so tourism how's, is big. how's that been received so far? What's the um, like? I know it's been it hasn't been that long, but what how are people reacting to this? What's yeah. been, how are you culturally changing the game there? Well, we're really um, excited about the portfolio of customers that we've been able to build over the last year. And it's it's really neat to see. So obviously the early adopters were a lot of the vegan um, restaurants and there are fantastic vegan restaurants across um, South Africa and Johannesburg and in uh, in Cape Town. And we've got customers like Lexi's and the Kind Kitchen in Cape Town, Lexi's and the Fussy Vegan in Johannesburg that make, you know, beautiful vegan food. And they were uh, obviously the early adopters mm -hmm. and they got on board right away. Um, we have been very successful in getting into some of the more mainstream um, uh, hospitality outlets. So Hudson's Burgers, you know, it is your, you know, Main Street uh, burger joint, um, a little on the high end, but um, 
but a very kind of cool, hip place and a place where everybody goes after work on Fridays. Um, you know, got on board early on. And the the Beyond Burger in Hudson's is frequently in a number of different locations, the number one selling burger that they have on the menu. Um, so, and we were able to get into Woolworths Cafe. So Woolworths is probably our Whole Foods equivalent. They have 76 cafes and they were able to offer the Beyond Burger uh, in their cafes. And they definitely are going after, you know, a, a wide um, uh, target audience, not just vegans. So, you know, the Four Seasons Hotel has come on board. The Radisson Hotels have come on board. So we have a really good mix of vegan and non-vegan restaurants. Um, we're really excited that we've got one of the mainstream kind of middle market it's really a meat and burger um, set of restaurants uh, who will be coming on board um, at the uh, the end of October. So we've got a really great mix of vegan, non-vegan, of restaurants that are really um, uh, patronized by by locals, by citizens, and the high-end safari and high-end hotels as well. So you know, for anybody who's going out and going on vacation to, uh, you know, wants to go to vacation in Africa, you know, you can now go out to, you know, infinitefoods.com and check out our website and you can, you know, pick the safari camp that has, you know, all of your favorite plant-based food. So you can have your Beyond Burgers and your Oatly Lattes. And um, uh, so we're, we're really excited that we can, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, when you go on vacation, even when you've traveled as far away as going, you know, from the U.S. to Africa, when you when you see something familiar, you suddenly have that warm, fuzzy feeling, right? You know, so, you, you know, you've traveled all this way to, to have this exotic vacation and to do something different. But when that, you know, when you see that, that Oatly, you see that Oatly carton or you see that Beyond Burger on the menu, it makes you feel warm inside, right? So, you know, we're trying to spread the love and make sure that uh, the international consumers can... Um, can get access as well. Yeah, and that's you know that's the the gateway to a much uh, bigger solution, right? Because obviously your goal isn't just to feed uh, tourists coming in from exactly. Europe and America, but you know if you can prove success there, then you can slowly expand into the local market. Um, so, for someone who's listening, who's um, you know works for a company or is is is, is sitting here planning to save the world with uh, their next big uh, startup focused on plant-based foods. How can they work with Infinite Foods? I mean, I think if you, I think they get a sense of what your pitch would yeah. be, but you know, besides the fact that, hey, if you want to feed the world, you should pick <laughs> Let's up. get going. Let's right. get going now uh, instead of waiting for some you know, possible future where you will expand internationally and just magically land up in Africa. Um, how can they get engaged with, uh, I mean, how can they engage in some sort of a discussion where they can at least plan for this if they're not ready for it now, at least plan yeah. for it in the next couple of years? Yeah, so we, we kind of run through a, we kind of run through a very basic process with potential new partner brands that we're bringing on board. So one is, you know, they obviously get us their SKU list and um, we sort through and try to figure out what we think are going to be the SKUs, whether they be retail or hospitality that we believe are going to be you know, most in line with the local tastes, because again, our our market is really focused as much as we do dabble in these high end safari industries. We're really focused on you know feeding South African and Botswana and Kenyans and Mauritians and Ghanaians. Um, so you know, what is the flavor profile that's going to fit best? And you know, what are the products? And we're really looking at mainstream products because 
we um, we have these very fragmented markets. And so if we're not working in core things like meat and milk and cheese and eggs and yogurt and so forth, then we're not really playing in little niche um, and more niche products. We're mm-hmm. really trying to get the word out by putting products out on the shelf that are really mainstream. They're things that people buy, you know, every day, every week and providing them the plant-based alternatives. But we run through a process. One is looking at the SKUs. We get some basic product spec information from them, which would be standard stuff they would have already. We then run the business case. So we figure out based on where we would pick the product up from, what is the landed price that we would have or what was the landed cost we would have. We then benchmark that against what are other products that are on the shelves um, in the various supermarkets or being sold into hospitality. And then we, we dial in on what, uh, what a price would look like um, in the marketplace. And our objective is always that our shelf price is not more than the U.S. equivalent in local currency. So going back to this whole mm-hmm. culture thing of accessibility, I don't want people to feel like, um, just because this is an imported product that they're having to pay a bigger premium than, say, an American would pay if going to pick up this product at Whole Foods. So we always try to get the price point um, as close as possible to what would be at par in local currency. Um, so once we run through that, um, we then just usually run a couple of test cases. So we, we send across just a, a small quantity to make sure that we can get it through customs and that we're getting... Um, uh, everything is flowing through smoothly and we don't have any issues. At that point, we just start placing orders for pallets or for container loads and, and we basically handle the rest. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool model, um, we think, in terms of helping enable these brands. Um, and, and it's great. You know, the, the cooler brands that we have, the better tasting products, <laughs> uh, our, our uh, chief operating officer, Neil Taylor, came up with what has become our, our, our grading scale when we're out working uh, and and talking with brands about bringing them into Africa, and he is a he is a three he is a three tier scale. So, uh, number one is products that effectively mimic exactly what they're supposed to be replacing, and they taste great, mm-hmm. right? So we definitely would put the Beyond Burger and Oatly and Just Egg and um, you know Miyoko's Butter in that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, category two is it tastes pretty good. But it doesn't really taste like what it's supposed to replace, mm. right? You know, so we get a lot of vegan burgers and so forth. You're like, okay, well, they, they don't taste bad, but it, you nobody, nobody's going to think that this is meat, right? Mm-hmm. Or really think that this is milk or butter or cheese. Um, and then we have category three, which is foul and disgusting. So, <laughs> so everything is basically in category one, two, or three, and you know we're very focused on 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 those brands that fit uh, fit the number one category. Yeah, and obviously you're working with some of the some of the bigger names already, so it, it it's not like you're str- you're struggling with category three right now and hoping to get to category <laughs> no. one. Not that I know of anyone in category three, but no. Uh, uh, <laughs> so. Um, I, I did try some larvae ice cream once that was pretty. That, that wouldn't fit in my plant-based food category, but oh, I really? think that, that okay. actually was – that was definitely category three. <laughs> All right. No, no, no words for that. <laughs> um, so what are your sort of – I know you've been in existence only for a few years, but what are your priorities for Infinite Foods um, in the in the short term, like in the next – coming up on 2020 now? What are you focused on? Yeah, so – 
We are really focused on execution, right, and, and, and executing our plan. I mean, the, the biggest challenge of Africa is this complexity, and so you have to execute on the ground um, really, really well. So uh, we are, you know, continuing to grow our sales footprint. I mean, we've gone from zero to 600 outlets in, in 10 months' time, so we're continuing to grow our sales footprint across, you know, hospitality um, or food service, retail, and in institutions. We do have some small institutional sales. Um, so getting our South African market, which is probably the biggest market in, in Africa, nailed and, and continuing to grow it at the pace that it's been growing. And then, uh, you know, execute against that geographic expansion. So it's Mauritius, Kenya, and Ghana will be the big regional anchors and once we have those stabilized, probably in the following year, we'll start looking at what we call the capital city strategy. So we may start hitting other African countries, but we'll really kind of focus in their capital cities as the, the main kind of jumping off point for distribution. So that's number one. Number two is building the brand portfolio. So, um, you know, we're constantly looking for, um, you know, great brands that taste great. Um, and that have kind of reached that level of scale where they can reliably get us a pallet, you know, you know, once a month that we can get in a container and get to us. Um, and so we want to continue to to recruit and bring on uh, partner brands. And the last bit is just continuing the market education piece. And a lot of that um, is is a long term play. So uh, we're going to be. Um, hopefully launching a school education program. We're building more partnerships. So um, we're working very closely with ProVeg, who's opened a South African branch. We're working with Humane Society. Um, and so we're building partnerships so that we can help partners who will help us carry that message out and do that kind of broad market education and awareness um, so that we're not, we're not carrying at all, but we're really working with mission-aligned partners who can help us. Yeah, and and how about from a regular regulatory standpoint as well as a policy standpoint? How, I, it sounds like, I think you mentioned earlier about each country has its own rules, and you're not you're not dealing with with just one government. Yeah. Um, how are you able to navigate all of that? Because I'm uh, thinking as someone who's, if I was running a company and I was suddenly getting into partnership with, or distribution in Africa, that would be one big concern for me. Is that okay? This all sounds good, but there may be a lot of hidden costs here because. I don't know how those governments run, and yeah. I don't know what they're going to, what fines are they going to slap us with. Um, yeah. So, so, so the answer is very carefully. <laughs> um, but we, uh, uh, one of my um, uh, key, we call co call co founder is uh, uh, George Sibasiba, and he um, is a skilled politician. He has a great. Uh, he's basically has built a great business over the last number of years and working in government relations. And he really spearheads all of our stakeholder management from a government perspective. You know, I've both on the Go Fresh business and on the Infinite business, we have been, you know, knock on wood, um, really fortunate in terms of uh, our ability to work with governments in a proactive way to make sure that we don't run into regulatory hurdles. And it's all about positioning what's in their best interest, right? So, I mean, for me... It's hard to it's a, it would be a hard to convince a government that this is not in their best interest, right? If we can help deliver healthy food, if we can accelerate the adoption of plant-forward diets, if we can help use this new food category as a positive catalyst to deal with challenges of youth unemployment and agricultural transformation, you know, why wouldn't that be? And how do we? And if mm -hmm. we can 
um, keep healthcare costs low and prevent people from, um, you know, moving into diets that will cause them for diabetes and, you know, health, uh, heart disease is now increasing in Africa. It's actually the number unlike in the U.S. where it's, you know, the number one killer, uh, in Africa it's only number three. But it is increasing and it's the fastest growing you know, kind of healthcare concern. And so we really do have an opportunity. And I think if you position with governments in that way, um, it is in their best interest to support the types of things that we're doing. And so you do those, those you have those conversations very proactively um, very transparently, and you know, you know, it's great to have on my team, um, you know, someone who's really skilled and has a great network to help uh, drive that. Mm-hmm. And just uh, obviously, this brings up the question also: What is the um, the food industry in Africa doing? In parts of Africa, at least, doing um, focused on this trend. I mean, is this so? Here we're talking about taking some of these mostly American brands. Yeah. And getting them to Africa, but are there food startups in in Africa focusing on plant based? And I think it's only a matter of time before that starts to happen, too, right? Yeah, if it isn't definitely. It, I think it's happening already. There are some local brands, and there certainly are some people who are trying to develop. Um, and and it's been initially very much focused at the vegan mart at the vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how uh, it always group, starts, right? Which right? is where it always starts. So yes, there are some local brands that are building, and we are as a platform are very open mm-hmm. to the best brands. So I don't care where they're from; they could be from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, America, South Africa, you know, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Ghana. Mm-hmm. I don't care where they're from as long as they're a category one product. Um, I think the reality is in order to be able to create the best products, you need R&D money. And whether we like it or not, most of the R&D money is flowing in the U.S. and Europe. And we can't really compete Mm. with the level of R&D spending that's happening in this this new um, food category uh, in most of our countries. So, yeah, we might have some guys who come up with some good stuff and they make it lucky or they may be really good. But I do think that the most of the innovation is going to continue to come out of the U.S. and Europe. And that's why I, I kind of often say we have a different role to play. Just because we're not um, you know, pouring all the R&D money in and we're not innovating all the best brands out of Africa doesn't mean that we don't have a very important role to play in this entire ecosystem. And if we can grow the cashews, if we can grow the mung beans, if we can provide uh, regional manufacturing with low-cost labor and, and decent infrastructure, we have a, we have an important role to play in the overall ecosystem, and we shouldn't get too caught up in the fact that we may not be the originators of all the best brands. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think of, I guess, Infinite, the best way to describe it is, is, a, is a portal into the African market uh, for plant-based foods. It's a platform... Um, and it's sort of agnostic to where and how and who, as long as it, it's not in category three and tastes like <laughs> crap. Um, exactly. So, um, well, I could, I could, I could keep talking, but I, it seems like we're running out of time. But um, oh, I rather I could keep listening to you. Um, I find this stuff really fascinating. But the the whole idea here of why, and you mentioned it too, is that the reason we even focused on this issue, the reason we we urgently need to make this a global solution, not just a American solution for American people or America and Europe, 
is because there's no way we can feed the world uh, by 2050. So I'd I'd love to understand what what is your scenario if this all works out as planned. In other words, if if Infinite Foods is capable of bringing in this kind of food, changing the cultural view of uh, meat, dairy, and eggs in, in Africa and change the way food is produced and consumed there and across the world. What like what is this end goal? What, the problem you're trying to solve when you see in the year 2050, what is that vision for the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've touched on a, on a lot of it. I mean, if I had my vision for 2050, um, we'd have a couple of outcomes. One is we would have helped facilitate Africa leapfrog from um, their cur- the current food system to a plant-forward, plant-heavy, plant-based food system and therefore enabled the population to leapfrog to health. Two, we will have developed and used this new food category as a catalyst to help transform our agricultural system and that we will be 25% of the world's arable land and we will be 25% of the world's production focused on this new um, commodity class um, and so that we can grow the input ingredients and uplift farmers and create livelihoods for the 60% of the people that are uh, still employed as farmers. Um, and that in the, in the process, we will have protected um, a beautiful continent um, and protected the world from um, you know, issues and environmental issues associated with factory farming and industrialized agriculture, and that we have a you know vibrant, healthy, employed Africa. Um, uh, you know, as as you know, if you if you look to 2050, four I believe it'll be four of the top 20 cities will be in Africa. Um, so this is, you know, Africa rising is real and it needs our time and attention if we want to make sure that the continent is a stable and healthy place to be. Well, Michelle, I'm so grateful that you decided to get out of Park Avenue and make it all the way to Africa and and get and embark on this journey to work on food Um and I'm grateful you made all the trip all the way here to LA so we could sit down in person and and record this conversation. The next time we do this is going to be in Africa. It'll so be I'll Africa, travel. or you'll have to come to Bangladesh. So yeah, <laughs> I'm 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 game. I love to travel. So, firstly, this has been fascinating, uh, eye opening. I I I just I feel like I have just 20 more questions that I could ask you just about. Uh, food in Africa <laughs> that have absolutely nothing to do with plant-based. But um, I, I hope the listeners not only got a sense of the urgency of the problem, um, the fact that we need to think global, not just local. Yes, we need to produce food locally, but we need to start doing that globally. Exactly. Um, and and I and I'm so glad that you've already made so many strides in this in this direction, and you're able to work with companies out here. Um, that are committed to actually solving this problem globally, even if it's a tough problem to solve. Um, no one's going to solve it if you don't try, and, I, and you're more than trying at this point. So firstly, I commend you on embarking on this uh, this challenging endeavor, and um, and I can't wait to see what happens next. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to hear our story and for us to share some of the work that we're doing. It's been a real pr- pleasure. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.